The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So what is an affordable house price? Is it the actual price that at least one person could pay? If you're being a market fundamentalist, you could say that every house that sells actually is an affordable house because at least one person could afford it. And when you look at the thousands of houses sold every year in New Zealand, you could say, well, we have an affordable housing market. There were thousands of sales that went through. Therefore, it's affordable. It's a slightly circular logic, but you get what I mean. And that's actually how the Reserve Bank has been looking at house prices recently. And not just house prices, but the sustainability of those house prices. And it's slightly different to what we think of as affordability. For the last couple of years, the Reserve Bank's been looking at this issue of sustainability of house prices. Are house prices effectively overvalued, unsustainable, or, heaven help us, undervalued and unsustainable down there? And back in August of 2021, the Reserve Bank said that house prices were unsustainably high and they were likely to drop as much as 20% over the next year or two. And that's actually what's happened. But now they say that house prices are around about sustainable. And I got to thinking, well, hang on a minute. We know that house prices are at least twice to three times more expensive now relative to incomes than they were 20 years ago. We know that New Zealand house prices are in the top three most expensive in the world relative to incomes and to rents. So how can we have a sustainable housing market when we're the most or almost the most expensive in the world? Well, it turns out the Reserve Bank's been doing some research on this. You might recall back in 2021, the government, at least initially, talked about giving the Reserve Bank responsibility or some sort of mandate to make house prices more affordable. And technically, that's sort of possible. If the Reserve Bank was to crank up interest rates until the pip squeaked, yeah, that would push down house prices. And we can see an early test of that because they did put up interest rates. Perhaps not to the pip squeaked, but certainly much higher than most people initially expected. And it was the main reason why house prices fell that 15 to 20%. Now, the Reserve Bank wasn't doing it specifically to push down house prices. They were doing it to control inflation. And they say they've pretty much finished now. But it gives us an idea of what you could do if you were really determined 
to make housing much more affordable by pushing up interest rates. The reason this is interesting is that the government, at least initially, suggested to the Reserve Bank, hey, you might want to look at getting house prices down to more affordable levels as your job. And there was some toing and froing, and eventually the Reserve Bank came back with a, a different word, sustainable. Now this, as I suggested at the start, is really all about how far out of the long-term sustainable level house prices are right now. And when we talk about sustainable, that is, given all the underlying factors in the economy and in our house building and migration and those sorts of things. So back in August 2021, the Reserve Bank said it was unsustainably high. And now prices have dropped and they seem to have stabilised. But what do we mean when we say house prices are sustainable? Or even when we say they're affordable? And we can push aside the market fundamentalist view that if there's one person who can buy a house, therefore the house is affordable. Of course, it's not affordable to most people. And most, most people who are sensible about these things would look at the New Zealand housing market and say it's not affordable for most people, for most first home buyers, at least on their own resources. Turns out, though, the Reserve Bank has been doing some research on this. Andrew Coleman is a longtime researcher, economist, who's now working for the Reserve Bank and did a big study on what is it that moves house prices and makes them sustainable or not sustainable. And in particular, looked at the types of unsustainability. So the short-term unsustainability, let's say you have a migration shock or a big increase in wages and you see prices jump up, Eventually, there's some sort of market response and we see the house building coming in and some sort of equilibrium met. So that's a sort of cyclical unsustainability. And then you have a long-term unsustainability, which is around, for example, the tax rules that we have in Aotearoa or our inability to build houses relatively cheaply or the inability of councils to make lots of land available for house building those sorts of issues. Those are structural uh, unsustainability problems. And Andrew Coleman looked at this, and this week on When the Facts Change, we're going to talk to Andrew Coleman about what is it that's cyclically unsustainable, what is it that's structurally unsustainable, and in particular, at the end, we look at just how much of a factor our tax system is in making our housing market unsustainable at least in the very, very long run, if you believe that our tax system will ever change. And what he says, and this is sort of the new part of the uh, when the facts change, is that our land prices are 60% higher than they otherwise would be because we don't have a neutral tax system for residential land. Now, you may hear some landlords say, hey, um, uh, land isn't treated any, other, any different from any other asset. And that's true. But uh, when you look at how investment in other assets relative to land, so let's say you put the money in a term deposit account, that is taxed, whereas the returns from investing in your own home are not, uh, either as capital gain or 
the, the value you get every year from living in that house. You could call it imputed rent. And there are some countries that actually tax that imputed rent. Andrew Coleman is saying that his research, his personal view, is that land prices in New Zealand are 60% higher than they otherwise would be if we had a neutral tax system. Also, he says that interest rates have been one of the major drivers in house prices rising and land prices rising sharply over the last 20 years. There's been a structural fall in interest rates. You may not feel it right now because of what's happened in the last couple of years, but relative to 20 or 30 years ago, interest rates are significantly lower. And you've got to work out where you are versus neutral interest rates to work out whether house prices are overvalued, undervalued, or maybe neutrally valued. In essence, today on When the Facts Change, we talk about what is it that makes a house price affordable and sustainable? And the kicker is, we've worked out that our tax system is responsible for a large chunk of the long-run unaffordability of New Zealand's housing. This week on When the Facts Change. Kia ora and welcome to Andrew Coleman from the Reserve Bank, a researcher who's done a fascinating paper on house market sustainability and how the Reserve Bank or someone running monetary policy might think about house price sustainability. Andrew, welcome into the kaka. Thank you very much for having me, Bernard. Now, this is a fascinating topic. Um, you could argue there's only two things that New Zealanders um, really care about, and that's interest rates and house prices. And, and this is a paper all about all of those. Uh, why did you write the paper? Why were you asked to write the paper to start with? The paper um, was started some time ago, in 2021, actually, in response to the changes to the remit, that uh, the Reserve Bank remit that occurred in 2021, when they added, the government added a clause that uh, we should assess uh, house price sustainability as part of the monetary policy um, framework. So the, the actual words are, the government policy is to support more sustainable house prices, including by dampening investor demand for existing housing stock, which would improve affordability for first home buyers. So it doesn't direct the Reserve Bank to um, intervene when setting monetary policy uh, into the housing market, but it does say that it's one of the considerations we should be uh, taking into account. And I have done a lot of work on housing markets in New Zealand, well, really since I came back from the States 15 years ago. And I want—I was very conscious that house price sustainability is not a regular academic concept. Uh, there's one other central bank in the OECD, that's the Czech Republic Central Bank, which also looks at house price sustainability, but it's not the major focus of the academic literatures either in monetary policy or in housing markets. And so it seemed like we really needed to define what these concepts were in a broad way. So that was the motivation from the bank. My personal motivation stemmed from the interest I have in housing quality issues. Most people, when they look at housing markets, think in terms of numbers of, of units without really thinking about quality. Whereas the academic literature 
uh, puts quality quite central in a way that often hasn't been addressed by central banks. And I knew something about that. And so it seemed like a golden opportunity to explore what sustainability meant and at the same time have a extended look at how central banks should be thinking about housing quality issues when they think about the economy. That phrase, sustainability, is um, a fascinating one in the uh, housing debate because very originally when this uh, cropped up, there was a suggestion that the word affordability could be used, but it's, it somehow changed in the process of getting into the, the wording of the mandate, the phrase sustainability. For those who are sort of new to it, what's the difference between affordability and sustainability? Well, let's start with sustainability. And I, in some sense, created a new definition here in two parts, and it's using futures market concepts. So in futures market, prices are in backwardation if the spot price is much higher than the future price. And it typically happens if you, say, had a frost in Florida and orange juice uh, prices go up immediately, but futures prices don't because they know that sometime in the future things will go back to normal. So a backwardation is when you have a temporary surge in prices followed by a decline back to normal. So that's, I, I decided that this would be a very good way of looking at sustainability. But having done that, there are two ways that you can have sustainable prices. So the first I've just said is cyclical backwardation, where prices are temporarily high and go back to normal. And the second is where prices stay at normal, but they're expected to shrink in the future, to fall in the future. Now, in housing markets, this could be because of um, changes, reductions in the cost of building, for instance, may lead to reductions in future house prices, but those reductions don't take place immediately. And so prices are higher now than they will be in the future. And so in some sense, they're not sustainable. We expect them to decline. So that was my motivation for looking at sustainability. And, and, and the paper goes a lot into the distinction between cyclical backwardation, which is when we have a price surge followed by a decline, because that's something that central banks can actually do something about. They may choose not to, but they have the ability to intervene there. Whereas structural backwardation, which is when prices are now normal, but they're expected to fall below current levels in the future, that's not something that's really amenable to central bank intervention. So for us, that's a major distinction, is those types of sustainability we could do something about, and those that we just can't do something about. That's other people's domains. It may be deregulation of the land markets or deregulation of construction costs. Nothing to do with central banks, but which does create sustainability issues. Now, back to your question. Affordability is all about the number of working hours or years it takes to buy a house um, or to rent a house. Um, and that's quite a lot different than whether the level of house prices is temporarily above what we can expect it in the future. Now, there's um, often times if house prices are 
unsustainably high, it means they're also unaffordable because they're very high right now and it's it's hard to pay the bills. Um, but the two concepts are quite different. Housing could be very affordable if it was just not very expensive, but still unsustainable because it's temporarily high in price and expected to go back. Or it could be sustainable and unaffordable for many people if it's at a very high level, but right now it's also at a temporarily higher level than normal. Does, is that quite clear? Yeah. So I, I, I get how you could have an unaffordable market, which is sustainable, and also an unsustainable market that is affordable, uh, which is uh, an interesting idea. Uh, what did you find in terms of the cyclical backwardation, you know, uh, how the you know, cyclical moves in prices, are prices sustainable? And then the structural uh, backwardation, you know, uh, are prices sustainable in a structural sense? Were you able to sort of work it out or, or come up with a hypothesis? The paper is quite detailed. It is really a comprehensive literature review, and it's not an easy topic. There's Housing is difficult. But yes, we did make a, a lot of progress. So I'll start with cyclical backwardation. Now, most countries have housing price cycles. They're not unusual at all. In fact, housing is one of the most distinctive markets in the world for the types of price cycles that it has. And there's two or three reasons for this. The first is very fundamental. Houses last a long time. Houses should last 50 to 100 years, or they're built in a manner which makes that true. And the land underneath the house lasts more or less forever. So they're a very long-lived um, good. But that means the construction sector is much, much smaller than the stock of housing. So currently, and, and we have the biggest construction sector in New Zealand as a fraction of GDP since the early 1970s at the moment, but even now it is only producing 3% of the stock of houses in any given year. So if you have a big change in the demand for houses, the housing sector, the construction sector, simply can't modify all the houses at once. It takes a long time. And during the process of modification, house prices temporarily surge to ration off demand. Now, that's the first thing, is you can't generate a large number of houses all at once. And the second thing is, is that um, because of quality issues, if you get changes in income or interest rates, a large number of people want to change the quality of the house they live in all at once. And so we're going to have a big demand increase, oftentimes when there's increases in income or reductions in interest rates, but no ability to modify the quality structure of the housing stock except over a long period of time. So it's very easy to imagine. Interest rates, mortgage rates may drop from 7% to 5%, and all of a sudden everyone says, oh, at current prices I can afford a much bigger house or I can afford to move to a much nicer location, a location where transports to the amenities I like are really low. But if everybody does that all at once and the building sector can't transform the houses all at once, people will bid up the prices until they uh, modify the demand. And in that process, the builders then seeing that the price of large houses has gone up a lot, 
because that's what everybody wants, they start transforming the whole stock of the housing, but they only do it slowly. So in these circumstances, you get a big price increase when incomes rise or interest rates fall, followed by a slow transformation of the quality of the housing stock. Some old houses get knocked over and built up big new houses. Other houses get extended or people put in new kitchens or such things. But they all want to do it at once, and that puts an enormous pressure um, on the housing market. Now, obviously, this isn't the only thing that causes work for builders. If you get a large influx of people, such as we've had in New Zealand, the builders have to build new houses for the new people. If you have an earthquake which destroys a large amount of the building stock, builders have to rebuild after the earthquake. And since 2000, New Zealand's had really three big demand shocks. One is rising incomes and falling interest rates. And they lead to a big demand for better housing. The second one is very large immigration, and that's led to, you know, I think the population increased by half a million since 2000. And that leads to a large increase, actually it's 750,000 since 2000. It's a very large number anyway. And that leads to a lot more new houses. And then we had the Christchurch earthquake. And the building sector just hasn't been able to cope with all the demand. And that's partly where the shortage in Auckland got acute, um, is that the number of people living in Auckland, plus the demand for much better housing in Auckland, meant that there was an enormous housing shortage. One of my colleagues, Ozir Karankadekali, and I wrote a paper five or six years ago, which was tracing out the shortage in Auckland and uh, of, of, of housing. And you can trace it in part to the population, but also in part to the quality. And in fact, we did a calculation that showed that if house price, if house sizes had stayed the same as they were in 1992, the square meterage that had been built in Auckland since 1992 would have been enough to house everybody. But houses didn't stay the same size. They went from 135 square meters to 200 square meters in roughly 2014. That's an enormous increase, the biggest increase in the OECD, as far as what we can see. And so the builders, instead of building new houses, we're building bigger houses, and bigger houses are more profitable. So they build them first, and then you get a housing shortage, which leads to unaffordability or a housing crisis because house prices are going up and small houses, which are suitable for lower income people in some sense, are not the ones being built. In fact, most low income housing is middle income housing built 30 or 40 years ago. And 30 or 40 years ago, Auckland was a much smaller city. There just wasn't much built 30, 40 years ago, and there's not much new housing built now uh, at small sizes. And so consequently, you get a big squeeze at the bottom as the builders are trying to build at the top. That's a fairly elaborate answer, but um, do you want to interject here? Yeah, so um, the Reserve Bank in recent financial stability reports and monetary policy statements um, has said uh, at various points that uh, house prices were unsustainably high, and obviously we've seen 
house prices fall in nominal terms uh, around 15% or so, and um, the Reserve Bank and others have forecast um, a little bit more of a fall. Um, how are we to judge when house prices are deemed to be sustainable? Is there any uh, index or um, calculation that you've come up with in which we can say, given the interest rates and population growth and size of our construction sector and tax system, this is the currently sustainable or unsustainable level in the short term and in the long term, this is the sustainable or unsustainable level. You can't be definitive about this for reasons I'll explain, but there's two or three things that give good clues. So the first is that um, construction costs have gone up by, I think, 32% in the last two years. That does not sound like a sustainable increase. Um, and we're clearly starting to see residential construction declining. Uh, and as that happens, one imagines that construction costs will start to decline, that some of the pressures, the temporary surges in construction costs as builders are so busy that they're rationing out uh, their time to the, the most expensive projects and so forth, that's coming to an end. And so we'd expect declines in construction costs to be the first signal that things are coming to an end. And so you need to be monitoring construction costs. As I say, they've gone up 30%. It's a price surge. I would expect some retraction from that. I don't know exactly how much, but construction costs are still somewhat higher than Australia, for instance. And I would be expecting a decline, a reversal um, in construction costs as one of the signals that housing is becoming more sustainable. When that flattens out, and we get a new level of construction costs, it could go back to the levels pre-COVID, you know, and they were not low then by international standards. And so if you add 30% to that, you might want to subtract 30%. I don't know. Um, uh, I'm not an expert on building houses, uh, but it's very unusual to get 30% increases in construction costs in two years. And so that, that would be reversed. The second thing is the level of interest rates. So interest rates have a very complex effect on building, on housing prices and building cycles. As I sort of suggested before, when interest rates fall, they spark a building boom and a temporary increase in housing prices as construction costs go up. That's temporary, and we'd expect that to eventually go away when the builders catch up with the backlog of demand. But they also have a near permanent effect on land prices. And it's not any land, it's land which is well located to good amenities. Beach land, land close to central cities, land which it's cheap to commute from, land by good schools. People will pay a premium for this. And you can think about this as how much is the annual premium I would pay to, say, live in Oriental Parade, which is very downtown to uh, Wellington and has got a nice beach, um, versus Upper Hutt, which is 40 kilometres away. And Upper Hutt's a very nice suburb, but it's 40 kilometres from downtown and it doesn't have a nice beach. 
And if you're prepared to pay $10,000 a year extra or $200 a week to live in Oriental Parade, you will then say, well, what's the capitalized value of that? How much would I spend as a lump sum to buy an Oriental Parade versus Upper Hutt to get the $10,000 benefit per year? And that depends on interest rates and to a lesser extent, the tax system. So if interest rates fall, if they were say 5%, you might say at 5%, I would pay $200,000 surplus to live an Oriental Parade over Upper Hutt. But if they fall down to 2% or 2.5%, that will go up to $400,000. And so you get a big premium, which is largely permanent from interest rates. So your question is, how sustainable are interest uh, house prices comes back to how sustainable are long-term interest rates. Now, New Zealand interest rates depend on foreign rates as well as the central bank. And foreign rates have been declining for two decades, more or less, but are at century low levels. And most people don't think they're going to remain at century low levels, in which case they will increase. And that would suggest that the premiums that you will pay for well-located real estate will come down from the highs of the last five years. And when international and New Zealand interest rates stabilize, I think we'll then have the second leg of sustainability, that the premiums people will pay for well-located land um, will stabilize. So in many ways, this question about sustainability is actually a question about where you think the neutral or long-run interest rate is. Yes, it is. And that's really an international rate rather than a New Zealand rate. You should. I, I like to think about this in the same way that I think about the oil price. We have very little effect on the oil price in New Zealand. But if the oil price drops, we start to buy different cars. So it transforms the car stock or it actually transforms the economy. And it's the same thing with the international interest rate. If there's large numbers of people internationally prepared to lend money, then it will transform the New Zealand economy to a, a neutral economy where we have more investment because of the lower interest rates and so forth. But there's a transition to that path. So we go along perhaps at a higher interest rate than the neutral rate as we reconvene the residential housing stock, as we build new infrastructure, as we build new investment. But eventually we will get to a New Zealand economy which is consistent with the global neutral rate. But the global neutral rate may be rising. I mean, part of the last five years, we've seen central banks around the world become the dominant player in government bond rates. It's not really a market rate when the central bank is buying 50 or 60% of, 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 of new government paper. But now central banks are selling their government paper and it's becoming a market rate again, and the interest rates are starting to rise. And when that process gets to a, some sort of stable place after inflation comes down, I think we'll have a, a much better idea of where the neutral rate is. And I suspect it's somewhat higher than the 0% of the last five years. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. 
Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Yeah, so interest rates have a role in uh, house prices in the short and long run. If you were running monetary policy uh, to um, achieve some sort of housing market sustainability target, which of course you're not, um, the, uh, the the mandate or the wording of the phrase is about monitoring house price sustainability and supporting the government's policies, not necessarily running monetary policy for house price sustainability. Um, the inflation uh, target um, band is still the primary uh, driver of monetary policy. But if you were, um, in theory, you'd be wary of cutting interest rates if you had an already unsustainable market because that would uh, create um, uh, conditions for another big rise. And vice versa, if you wanted to create more sustainability, if you had an unsustainably high uh, house price and you wanted to drive it back down, at least in the short short run, you could use monetary policy to do that. Uh, is is there any evidence or any uh, anywhere in the in the world where this has been done or could be done? I think the big distinction here is could and should. The evidence from around the world is that housing markets are sensitive to interest rates, both on the construction side and on the price side. So there's the two sides of the cycles, how much new housing is built. And the sensitivity there is all to do with quality. It's people buying better houses and building better houses. And there's also a price cycle as well, because in part, you get these cyclical backwardations, these price surges when the builders are so busy, and you get increases in the price of well-located land, uh, the premiums that are paid for there. So I think there's no doubt from international uh, evidence that both the quantity of activity in the construction market and house prices are very sensitive to interest rates. I think there's no doubt. And that means central banks could intervene in housing markets, uh, by, they could make choices in monetary policy which would have an effect um, of stabilising housing markets. So in some sense, 
And this goes back to my links to futures markets, um, where you can have temporary high prices, ration demand, or you could have higher interest rates, ration demand. And there are substitutes there. So if we raise, if a central bank raised interest rates, it would mean that prices wouldn't go so high because there wouldn't be so much demand. That's the could side of this. The should side of this is very much that our mandate is to do with inflation and maximum sustainable employment. And the housing cycle affects that mandate. Housing is one of the most cyclical industries. And so uh, it's certainly conceivable that raising interest rates when employment is unsustainably high, in large part because of a, or in part because of a building cycle, that you may wish to raise interest rates to cool down the housing market um, to prevent too high inflation in the future or unsustainably high employment. So that's certainly feasible to imagine, but that's a should question and not a could question. So central banks typically know they can, but they haven't chosen to. Um, in the past. This is hotly debated in central bank circles. Um, a lot of ex-governors of famous central banks, people like Ben Bernanke or uh, Mervyn King, have written books and they've sort of said maybe interest rates could be used more um, to prevent unsustainable building and, and housing cycles um, and to prevent financial crises. And that's partly because there's now a lot of evidence that if you have rapid increases in credit and rapid increases in asset prices, there's a much higher probability of a financial crisis occurring um, than otherwise. And some central banks, you know, the evidence on that is very clear. And some central banks are starting to question, is it worth as a stabilization tool using interest rates to stabilize housing cycles to prevent cycles, uh, 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 bad financial cycles. But the debate is ongoing. It's certainly not one-sided. Um, many central bankers say, no way, Jose, um, you know, you should not be raising interest rates uh, on the housing cycle because it doesn't work. And others are saying, maybe you should. The evidence suggests that every time we have these big booms in housing markets going back to Japan or Norway, Sweden and Finland in the 1990s, actually New Zealand in the late 1990s as well, but the global financial crisis, and they're saying this is too recurrent for us to, to, to not take notice. It's not an easy question, and I hope in the paper I'm quite clear about the distinction between could and should. The could is clear. The should much less so. And just uh, finally, um, although we could spend many hours on this and have a lot of fun, and we should we could sell tickets. Uh, could you talk about how the tax system uh, uh, has a role in New Zealand in uh, how sustainable or unsustainable how's it, the housing market is? Uh, although you know we share various housing cycles with others, ours seems slightly more extreme. And if you measure our house prices relative to incomes and rents, ours seem at the top end uh, and certainly have risen more, um, at least up until uh, 2021, than many other countries. So what role has the tax system played in this? 
Yes, this could go on for hours, unfortunately. <laughs> it's something I've also written extensively on over a 20-year period. Mm. Uh, uh, to be brief, New Zealand has one of the most unusual tax systems in the OECD. That's just factual. Uh, we don't have the types of social security, uh, social security taxes that most countries have. And this means we have relatively low taxes on labor income and relatively high taxes on capital income. Even though we don't have a, um, a capital gains tax, we are actually high on capital income and low on labor income. Um, how, how, how is that? Because we don't have a capital gains tax. How can we have high, high, high um, taxes well, on we capital income? Well, we tax interest and dividends at oh. relatively high rates compared to most other countries. And we, ta we gather more um, income as taxes on capital income than most OECD countries. We're right at the top and have been for nearly 20 years um, on this. And that goes back to the fundamental issue that we don't have social security taxes. Because if you have social security taxes, which most countries fund their pensions from, um, that's only on labor income uh, and not capital income. And um, so, so that's the first big difference um, with our tax system in other countries. Most countries don't tax imputed rent. So if you look at tax on housing, there's two issues. There's one for people who live in their own homes, and there's one for landlords. And uh, the tax system is quite different on both parties. And you sort of want to think, who goes to the auctions and who wins the auctions? And to some extent, it depends on how easy landlords versus first home buyers find it to raise money. And in some sense, it also depends on what their incentives are. And the incentives from the tax system are quite different. So you need to look at this both ways. So from a landlord perspective, New Zealand is unusual in not having capital gains taxes. And it's also got these high tax rates on capital income uh, relative to most other countries. And that has made uh, becoming a, a, a landlord rather an attractive proposition, all the way up from 2000 to starting five years ago when various ad hoc measures were made um, and started reducing the tax advantage to investing in um, residential property over, say, lending to a bank. Those tax advantages don't clearly exist any longer on, on the landlord side um, because there's been various ad hoc measures which have started to reduce them. And in fact, it may well be that residential property is now tax disadvantaged to other investments. But on the owner-occupying side, um, owner-occupied housing is still a very good investment relative to um, investments in shares and paying tax on dividends or particularly lending to banks, investing in debt. And that's partly because we don't tax imputed rent. Now, I'm not advocating that we should tax imputed rent, but it means that if you go and buy a better quality house, you get the benefits of that better quality house untaxed. Whereas if you took the same money and lent it to the bank, you would have to pay tax on the interest. And that provides an incentive to buy better quality housing. Now, in the paper, I do some calculations and suggest that the tax incentive to buy bigger houses is about 
So we might expect that the houses to be about 20% bigger than otherwise from the tax advantage to owner-occupied housing. Well, for a country that has the third biggest houses in the world on average, or new houses in the world on average, as far as we can tell, uh, not, not too many countries collect these statistics, but we are number three, and we're nowhere near number three on the income stakes. Um, uh, this may explain why we have a lot of new big houses in New Zealand. The other part is that it provides an incentive to buy in the best suburb. And who hasn't heard of the adage that you should buy the worst house in the best suburb? Well, part of that is that if you go around to sell it, it's tax free. And so again, spending extra to live in a better suburb not only gets you better amenities, but any appreciation that comes as incomes grow from other people, by the time you sell it, you'll be saving in a tax-free manner. Now, this is, means that there's quite a large tax advantage for owner-occupiers to buy big houses in well-located areas, even if we ignore completely the tax advantage to landlords. Now, this is two ramifications. First, two-thirds of houses are owned by owner-occupiers. And they're the best two-thirds, right? It's the luxury houses are mainly owned, or the middle, you know, the big houses are mainly owned by um, uh, owner-occupiers. And so that end of the market is dominated by tax considerations on owner-occupiers. The other end tends to be affected by both owner-occupiers and landlords. Now, if you cut the tax, tax advantage to landlords, which has happened in the last five years, but don't cut the tax advantage on owner-occupiers, what you'll see is not necessarily that prices fall, although they will, but they will fall from the tax advantage that landlords had down not to the new tax advantage of landlords, but to the tax advantage of owner-occupiers. And owner-occupiers will now be competing against themselves to buy the houses rather than competing against landlords to buy the houses. But if you have a tax advantage to buy a first home rather than lend money to the bank, you will still be spending higher, artificially higher amounts on property. So to deal with this, you need to deal with the owner-occupied issue and the landlord issue. And New Zealand actually has quite a strange tax system in the sense that the margin of owner-occupiers, that's because we don't tax imputed rent, relative to other investments is relatively high in New Zealand and that's because of the way we tax retirement incomes. It's completely different than most OECD countries. And in most OECD countries, the, the difference between the tax treatment on owner-occupied housing and on other forms of savings, if they're in your retirement account, like a KiwiSaver account, is much smaller than it is in New Zealand. And so we tend to have a wedge there, which again may generate artificially high prices. Now, I'm going to qualify this. It provides the incentive to have artificially high prices. Whether people respond to those incentives in ways that lead to artificially high prices is something that is very hard to establish econometrically or statistically. But we have had the highest increase in 
tech in-house prices since 1990 in the OECD. Um, and so at least it's consistent with the idea that the tax system is part of the reason why house prices and land prices especially may be artificially high in New Zealand. And you, you mentioned that uh, you estimated that the tax effects provided an advantage for owner-occupiers uh, of around about 20%. Is that correct? That's 20% on the size of new houses. Gotcha. The premium that you pay for land is actually quite a lot higher. Have you worked that out? Uh, it's in the paper. So I put estimates. Um, they're not official. They're my own. Um, and that depends on the average inflation rate because the higher the average inflation rate, the higher the benefit of having a capital gain um, as an owner-occupier rather than lending money to the bank. Um, but it could easily be 60 to 70%. So in theory, uh, if the Reserve Bank, of course, is not responsible for taxation policy, and I wouldn't um, uh, suggest that um, the Reserve Bank should be advising the government on tax policy. That sounds like some other department's job. <laughs> Oh, we don't. And, and, yeah. and these are my own views and they're not mm. the official views of the Reserve Bank. The paper makes this very clear. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is reflecting some of the work I've done myself over the last 20 years when I wasn't at the Reserve Bank. But yes, mm -hmm. keep going. Yeah. So um, uh, in your personal uh, view, having studied the tax situation closely, uh, um, what types of tax reforms would um, equalise the situation, if you like, to make uh, housing not, particularly owner-occupied housing, not um, advantaged versus other types of investments? The theory on this is relatively clear. And again, I, I'm going to have to qualify this. This is a personal view. It has got nothing to do with the Reserve Bank. Uh, it's got nothing to do with any other government department. Um, but the, the issue here for owner-occupied housing is that uh, the tax advantages relative to an income tax system is that we don't tax imputed rent. That's the value, the implicit value of rent that you get uh, from living in your own house. Um, so we don't tax that. Uh, and, and at the same time, interest rates aren't deductible for your own house. So about a third of the housing stock is owned by people who don't have a mortgage, and about a third is owned by people who do have a mortgage, and about a third by landlords. So for the third of the people who, who are typically older and have larger houses who don't own uh, um, have a mortgage, the tax advantage is really that imputed rent is not taxed and capital gains are not taxed. And um, most countries say, that's fine. We don't tax imputed rent and we don't tax capital gains on owner-occupied housing. But what they do do is they don't, they, they um, sorry, I have to take a step back, um, Bernard. Sure. There's two types of basic tax systems that we're familiar with. There's income tax systems and there's consumption or expenditure tax systems. Um, like a GST is a consumption tax and an income tax. But the real difference is when you pay taxes. Both tax income, but one tax is income when it's first earned and one tax is income when it's spent. 
And it turns out that there's various ways that you can tax income when it's spent, a consumption tax, rather than when it's earned, an income tax. And one way of transforming an income tax system into a consumption tax system is to say, if you save money, you don't pay tax on it when you earn it, you only pay tax on it when you spend it. So this is an idea that goes back to one of the great uh, 20th century economist, Irving Fisher. And one way of doing that is that if you put money into a special savings account, you don't pay tax on it when you put it into the account, but you get taxed on the whole sum plus interest when you withdraw it. And, and that's called something called, it's called exempt, exempt tax system. And it transforms an income tax system into a consumption tax system because it delays when you pay the tax on your money. Now, the way that we tax housing in New Zealand and in most countries around the world is called uh, TEE, tax exempt, exempt. And that means that you buy your house out of tax paid labor income, but you don't pay tax on the imputed rent. And if you sell the house, you don't pay tax on it. And that's called a prepayment form of an expenditure tax. Um, Lord Caldor came up with this in 1956, and he wrote a book on expenditure taxes. So it's a very old idea. It's 70 years old. Uh, and most countries have adopted this. And they, and they have a system whereby you do what we do in New Zealand. But they also say, if you put money into a retirement savings account, then you don't pay tax on your income when you earn the, the money that goes into your KiwiSaver account when it's earned. And you don't pay tax as it accumulates, but you pay tax on the whole sum when it's withdrawn, when you're 65 or more, when it's assumed it's going to be spent. And that brings the tax treatment of housing, owner-occupied housing, in line with all the money that you'd have in your retirement account. So that's one way of approaching it, and it's actually the common way that most countries um, in the OEC do it. Uh, so we became an exception in 1989 when we uh, got rid of our EET system and we moved to a TTE system. Now, there's some good reasons to do that, and there's some costs from doing that. And one of the costs is it creates a wedge with owner-occupied housing, which is somewhat larger in New Zealand than in most other countries, relative to the alternative of putting more money into your KiwiSaver or retirement savings account. Um, so whether or not that's important, I don't know. I know that there's an incentive there. Whether people respond heavily to that incentive and say the best way to retire um, is to buy the biggest house in the best location and sell it when I get old because all of that is tax-free, well, that's a different question of whether people are responding to the incentives. But I think it's a question we should be investigating it somewhat further length than we have. Sounds like you've got a job for life there with all those um, all that research into those areas. Uh, and um, um, thank goodness you're doing it. You're doing it. I just wondered, uh, just finally, Andrew, and sort of a technical question, uh, has the uh, issue of home renovations been taken into account in your analysis here? Because uh, one of the um, side effects, you could argue, of the um, the tax benefits for owner-occupiers uh, is that they uh, can 
improve the scale of their existing house. You know, you can build on an extra bedroom or you can turn the garage into a studio or uh, whatever it is. Um, is that taken into into account in your estimates of the effects of the tax advantage on the size of houses? Yes, it is. So the, the paper looks at alterations as being um, one of the central ways of the transformation of the housing stock from one quality level to another quality level. Uh, and we've also looked at this in the analysis of the building st statistics. It's new buildings plus alterations. Um, for most of the cycle, these are highly correlated. When new building occurs, you get a lot more alterations. That was not true in the last two or three years. In the last two or three years, there was so much new building that alterations actually were falling. Um, um, and I think a lot of people will um, recount how difficult it has been to get a plumber or a builder or a, re a roofing expert over the last two or three years. They've all been um, occupied building new houses. But over the cycle, um, these are highly correlated. And um, it's definitely taken into account in the analysis. In fact, it's fundamental to the transformation of the building stock that occurs um, when incomes go up or interest rates change. Andrew Coleman, um, a researcher at the Reserve Bank who's done a fantastic paper, which I'll link to in the show notes with the podcast. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Bernard, for having me on your show. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.